Glad to be back again with you. Thank you for the welcome, being able to open the word of Christ to all of you today in worship, trusting that Pastor Jim and his family are having some refreshing time as well. Uh, very important, make sure your pastor takes some of that time aside. Well, introduction, just to kind of get us back where we were last week and where we're moving ahead. I hope that our time last week in Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 through 9, uh, we're just that kind of stirring of ideas, getting us to a place of reflection where we're looking more and more at that wonderful work that God has done on our behalf in our helplessness. God sent his son, Jesus, to free us from the pains of death, to free us from the power of sin uh, that holds the world around us captive. We, though, are no longer captive to sin, are we? We are in Jesus Christ, and we are free in him. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians 3, as he was writing to the believers at Philippi, that something was slowly starting to pull away their freedom and pulling them down and causing them to kind of go back to those old patterns of trying to make ourselves presentable to God, make ourselves somehow within ourselves better for God. There is that natural tendency that we have and that is the lie from the original act of sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden where they chose to become more like God and less like the ones made dependent on God. So independence takes our freedom away. It's an irony, isn't it? It takes our freedom away rather than helps us uh, be actualized. So we who are born again in Christ, we can see him with greater clarity as we experience this freshness of freedom in Christ. So what I want to do here is just quickly for the first point, if you're writing any notes, like a Roman number one in your outline, a reminder of last week's uh, message. And I'm just going to hit what were the main points. Uh, it's the passage that uh, we're looking at that is the basis for our verses today. So let's read the whole passage. Then I'll look at a reminder from verses 7 through 9, and then we'll go on in verses 10 and 11 today. Let me read Philippians 3, beginning at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things. I count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ, that I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, that I may know him, that I might know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and being conformed to the image of his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. As we prayed and asked the Lord to inhabit the praises of his people and for the spirit of God to open us, let's have our hearts open to his truth as we look at verses 7 through 9 in retrospect from last week. The first thing that we noted 
was God's goal for us is to have freedom. God's goal is for us to experience his definition of freedom, of course not the world's definition of freedom that we're used to. The context of Philippians 3 we saw was this unique irony because the Apostle Paul is speaking about this self-made prison that we all have of independence. And Paul is speaking about prison and freedom, but he himself is in prison. He himself is captive in Rome, writing this letter to the believers in Philippi. And it underscores that sad irony that each of us have to live in, that though Jesus Christ says that we have been set free, we have been made free by his work, his atoning work on the cross at Calvary, we still often choose to step back in patterns uh, that are not free at all, uh, that actually render us away from the freedom that God designed for us. Self-trust, overconfidence, or the opposite of self-doubt and discouragement, and none of these are free at all, are they? Well, the second point uh, that I showed us from this passage in verses 7 through 9 that daily faith is a process that makes us really free. Daily faith is a process. It's not a one-time thing. I asked Jesus to save me. I believed on Jesus. I had faith. Now, therefore, everything's fine, and we can move on our way. No, believing in Jesus Christ set us up for a daily life of believing, of making choices every day, of saying, Yes, Jesus, I don't want to believe what the world's telling me. I don't want to believe what my urges are telling me, what my old patterns of, of getting along are. I want to be daily believing you. Verse 9 tells us this new way of freedom only comes by this purposeful believing in Christ, believing in active faith is what he's saying. Verse 8 of John, uh, chapter, excuse me, chapter 8 of John, if the Son has set you free, Jesus said, Jesus Christ, the Son, sets you free, then you are free indeed. But to be free indeed means daily i got to live making choices of freedom. It doesn't just happen to me. And twice then, in verse 9 of Philippians 3, we saw that because we are born again, this saying yes to Jesus, yes, bring this life in me, is something we have to do. Going on, thirdly, last week, Daily faith is a two-step process. Faith in Jesus is, is constantly a two-step process. And really, this is a picture of repentance, isn't it? That first step of daily faith in verses 7 and 8 that we saw there is that I have to actively call out what is the counterfeit. I have to actively reckon with or call or count everything as loss so that I can enjoy the real freedom intended for me in Christ. So I've got to be actively calling it out. I've got to be reckoning that my self-trust, that my personal definitions of things are worthless. They're not going to get me where God wants me to be. I must actively identify those old counterfeit ways of freedom, trusting myself, trying to control my world. So this first step is really just agreeing with God that what he's provided me, provided you in Christ, is adequate, is everything we need, is better. So we call this daily repenting. It's agreeing with God that I'm off the mark. That's not a bad thing. That's not a negative, horrible thing. Because remember, there's no 
There's no condemnation now in Christ. We're not going to be condemned for admitting something we've done wrong. It's actually part of the good process of getting us where we need to be. So missing the mark, it's okay to tell God that. The second step, not only counting all things for loss, but now it's saying yes to freedom. I need to actively embrace the real thing. Step two is what I'm talking about earlier. It's that speaking to my heart. It's that believing. It's that saying the value of knowing Christ is what I want. So it's a step of faith that goes away from myself and it comes back to him. So a two-step process, calling out what's wrong, admitting it, and then saying yes to what was real all along. These aren't anything new to us. They're things that I'm sure you and I even practice to a degree every day. But it's so helpful for us to just step back for a little while on the Lord's Day, have time in his word, and just get this stuff recalibrated in the brain, in the heart, so we can set off and keep giving glory to God. The third point, or fourth point, letter D, the final point that I showed us was connected, and it is call out to yourself the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Call it out. Speak it in front of the Lord, saying, your way is greater, Jesus. There's nothing better than you. Call out that surpassing value of being known by Christ and knowing Christ. Remember, it, it all started with God coming while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. While we were helpless in our sin, God in his son, Jesus Christ, in that amazing work before the foundation of the world chose us in Adam. He purposed to bring us to himself, to forgive, redeem, make new. And so he knew us, and as he knew us, now we can truly know him. And um, verse 8 says that there is this surpassing value, as I've mentioned before. It's convincing ourselves of superiority that we have in Jesus. So three things that result from that. Knowing Jesus recalibrates my value system. Recalibrates my value system. It helps me to, to see things as they are. To recognize the fact that some of the times I have ascribed meaning, I have given meaning and motives to people and things that I don't really have the right to. And that I give value to things in my life, situations that come my way that aren't that valuable, that aren't how God sees them. And so it allows me to recalibrate that stuff, to get his system back in and rethink some things. Maybe to you it's so important to kind of be the last one to have the last word in a, uh, we won't call them arguments, we'll just call them a discussion. And it's just kind of important for you to always feel affirmed by having the last word, to just walk away and say, at least I was able to say the last thing because I feel like she or he never listens. So at least I had the last word. Well, is that really valuable? Is that God's value system? Or is that something I've come to do for me because my self-esteem is so low that I feel I have to boost it somehow by always getting in the last word? Just simple things like that. God allows you and me to look at ourselves, recalibrate and say, it's not that valuable. It doesn't bless. It doesn't build up. Well, secondly, so not only recalibrating, but knowing Jesus daily is my transformation. It transforms me. And I use the, uh, the name of that sermon by Thomas Chalmers, The Expulsive Power of New Affection. 
the expulsive power, what pushes out the junk in my life is bringing something beautiful and new that's greater into my life, and that's Jesus. So as I gaze on him, as I behold his beauty, it has an automatic push out the stuff that's worthless. So really, instead of trying to fight everything and trying to go on a witch hunt to find all the bad stuff in me, the most important thing is I just value my God. I worship my Savior. I spend time pondering, as we were doing just now, singing in our worship service. We were evaluating words that were biblical allusions and biblical phrases. And we were looking at him. And as we looked at him, what was our heart doing? Our heart was maybe quickly tracing over something we said this week or a situation that came up. And all of a sudden, the words that I'm just saying level it all out, don't they? They just say truth to my heart. That expulsive power of Jesus pushes all the other stuff out of the way. And that's what we have with him. The third point to conclude, knowing Jesus makes me content. Content. I'll never be abandoned. I'll never be let go. I won't be at the end of the line with Jesus. I'm content because he tells me I'm his. He tells me he values me and prizes me above all else. Well, okay, let's move on now to today's passage. We looked at verses 10 and 11 already. What do these two verses, this very short passage, do? They work on that foundation. That's why I took that extra time here. I don't go that long usually, but we've got to make sure that we're building this stuff on these proper building blocks. So what is it, as you and I are valuing Christ, as we're counting everything else but loss, how do we daily do that? How, how does that, what's that look like? in a daily life. And the first thing Paul tells us, verse 10 is, so that I am knowing his resurrection power. I'm knowing, I'm, I'm having his resurrection power. Verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. A believer, you and I in Jesus Christ, now possess this internal spiritual source of energy in order to be and to do everything that God is calling us to be. It's a pretty high calling to follow Christ. And maybe you've spoken to people who are outside of Christ and they look at you and, and they see you as kind of a really nice person living a clean life and making choices that they don't make. And they just kind of put you on a pedestal and they say, I just can't do that. I could never be what you are. You know, it's just too much, you know. And you say to yourself, oh, if you only knew <laughs> what I fight inside. If you only knew who I am and what God is constantly doing in me to make me like himself. This ain't me that you see. This is God working in me. There's this internal spiritual force that is mine it's that resurrection power. It's God's promised supernatural connection so that you and I can do everything that he calls us to do. We can't do it on our own. No way. And that person on the outside is looking at us thinking in themselves they've got enough power to do it. You and I have come to that humbling point in our life and said, I can't be and do all that God calls me to be. Forget it. This present session or seating of Jesus Christ in heaven at the right hand of the Father 
This is what guarantees us our position now. This is what guarantees us the power that we need to live that life with Christ. Jesus promised that resurrection power that when he would be resurrected by the Father in heaven, when he would leave his disciples on earth, die a horrible death, and then be raised out of the grave, that wonderful things would take place for believers. First for his disciples when he was promising them these things in John chapter 14. And they're looking going, what are you talking about? They didn't get it at first, did they? But boy, those words were just powerful words. Uh, John 14 verse 12, he said, truly I say to you, let me just turn there and read. There's a couple little ones I want to jump to. John 14. Verse, verse 12. Truly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works will he do in my name, because I am going to be resurrected and go to the Father. My work will be approved here on earth. So the Father will give you the ability to do things that are beyond what I've done for my 33 years here on earth. 2,000 years later, God has done amazing works through countless believers who are walking in the power of the Spirit, hasn't he? Just amazing what God has accomplished. The little work that Jesus started wasn't a little thing, but it was so small like a mustard seed, was it? When he died, it looked like everything was over. These disciples were just, you know, after three years of being with him, oh, forget it. Why did, we, why did we spend this time? How could any of these things come true? And then all of a sudden, tchoom, the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, the spirit comes, and the rest is history. 2,000 years later, look what God has done. Greater works through his people. But then verse 16, uh, Jesus goes on, I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper, that he will be with you forever. You see, Jesus, when he died, he knew that we couldn't be left alone. We had to have, through the resurrection, we had to have the Holy Spirit given to us. And so that's what I believe Paul is getting at here in Philippians 3. And then look at verses 18 to 20. I will not leave you as orphans. No, I will come to you, Jesus says. Well, wait a minute. He's going to be in heaven. He's going to die. He's going to come to us through the resurrected power of the Holy Spirit, through that faith living that we do in him and that he promises to enliven us with. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Wow. How does the world know Jesus? Spirit of God alive in us. Resurrection power happening, giving us the ability to change, to be different to be more like Christ. Let's look at the second point then. We saw 10, we are given this resurrection power. Secondly, in verse 10, we're given fellowship in Jesus' sufferings. Now this phrase here describes for us what Christians are called to do. We have a sharing, we have a participation in what Jesus had to endure as he laid himself up on a cross, gave himself over to that horrible death, gave himself over most of all to the separation from his father, 
to become judgment, to become the execration from the Father on behalf of our sin. Our sin was so heinous that it had to tear Jesus apart literally. In those horrible three hours of agony on the cross during that sun, uh, when the sun went out and in that horrible eclipse, here was Jesus being mangled, beaten by the Father. Why? Because that had to be the suffering and punishment due to our sin. Well, when all that took place, the scripture says that this suffering becomes then a picture for us, a moniker for us of the way of denying ourselves for a greater result. Just as Jesus denied himself as he hung on that cross and allowed himself to be ridiculed, put to death. So there was this self-denial that went on that acts as a model for you and me. The Apostle Paul uses the word fellowship here in verse uh, 10, and it's a word that we know. It's called koinonia. It's a Greek word for koinonia, and we normally think, oh, let's have fellowship with one another. Let's be believers and enjoy how wonderful it is to be the Church of Christ. You wouldn't think of that word fellowship, though, being a fellowship in death. You mean we're, we're enjoying the sufferings of Jesus as a fellowship? Yeah, because the word fellowship also means, in broader term, it means an enterprise. It's an enterprise in the gospel. We are co-laborers with Jesus for an end in sight. And so we take on his sufferings as co-laborers, as enterprisers with Jesus. He stooped very low first by taking on human form and then continually subjecting himself to bad treatment while he was here on earth to all the forms of being misjudged, of being misunderstood, even by those who cared for him and loved him, his own family, thought that he had lost his mind, his own disciples in those very decisive moments up to his death when he needed friends around, when he needed that support because he was fully human, fully God and fully human, needing other humans, and they turned tail and ran. Here's Jesus in these horrible hours giving himself suffering. The ultimate suffering, that horrible, lonely time on the cross, as we've mentioned. So Paul tells us that we daily have to be walking with Jesus in this gospel enterprise. This is the right way of walking with Jesus. He's calling us to often take the lower way. He's telling us to step back, to give up our own prerogatives. He calls us to privation a lot of the time. Well, it'd be very easy to assert, hey, I'm the one that did that. Hello, I'd like credit where credit is due. I did that project. Do I need, do I need that credit? Do I need to be affirmed? That's what the world tells me. The world tells me that I'm not very emotionally healthy and stable if I'm not taking credit where credit's due. And yet Jesus subjected himself to privation. How do we put that into the whole picture? Well, we're going to see that as we fill out the rest of this passage. He wants us to do all of this in order to walk the gospel path with Jesus toward a greater end. 
That's why the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1.24 says something in Colossians 1.24 that just seems almost heretical, uh, maybe if at best strange. Paul says in Colossians 1.24 to fellow believers at Colossae, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and right now in my bodily experience I am doing my share on behalf of Christ's church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Filling up what's lacking in Christ's sufferings? Wait a minute. Are you telling me that the atonement of Jesus on the cross wasn't enough? No, that's not what Paul's getting at. We know from other scriptures that's not true. When Jesus died on the cross, that finished work, that atonement was totally adequate. So when we take on the low route, when we choose to follow Jesus' example, rather than pushing through in our own power, then we're fellowshipping with Jesus in a suffering here on earth. We are imitating. We are in our imitation filling in Jesus' work that he started here by visually being seen on earth. We're, we're following in his footsteps. We're filling in that work of Jesus. So his work was complete on Calvary, but he left us here the earth to be that picture to be that aroma of Christ to be the open letters to the world of this one whose pathway was suffering and death and resurrection one other passage that shows us this besides Colossians 124 is 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 20 and 21 um, and this passage written by Peter the one who turned tail and ran from Jesus, remember? Wasn't even there when Jesus was hanging on the cross. I do believe Peter probably snuck around the corner, hiding, and he saw his Savior hoisted up there outside of, outside of the city. I know he did, because read these words. You know he had to have seen his Savior. He says, First Peter 2.20, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, he has left you an example so that you might follow that example. See, you and I have to follow that suffering example that we follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there even deceit found in his mouth. In fact, when he was being treated meanly and they were insulting him, when they were cursing at him, throwing everything that they could at him, he did not respond back in an ugly way, when he suffered, he did not threaten them. He didn't mutter under his breath, you're going to get yours. No, it says instead he kept entrusting his heart to the Father who would then judge justly. So here's a picture of suffering. God is telling us that's the moniker. That's the picture that we want. You're being called in by your boss and you find out that somebody's been snitching behind the back and making stories about you at work that aren't true. And you want to defend yourself, but your boss is on your case, and you better just be quiet right now. Just let them come up with the whole situation, let it come out, and then see how God is going to help defend you. There will be an opportunity for you to respond, but don't defend right now. What's the way of suffering? What's the way of taking on Jesus' form of suffering on the cross. 
that we might follow in his steps. It doesn't mean that we lay down and roll over and pretend like nothing happened. That's not what scripture is saying. But how does Jesus respond? What is his powerful way that he responds in suffering? So for us to follow his steps, we give those messes that come at us, we give them over to Jesus. We don't try to bear through or power through situations that come our way. The world has taught us to do that, and that's really in our DNA. But Jesus is saying, not anymore. You're in me. You're different. We connect. We fellowship with our suffering Savior. We koinonia with Jesus. We give the hard people. We give those hard situations. We give all our sufferings to Jesus first. Well, fourthly, um, to be conformed to his death in verse 10. Christ's final giving, his, his sacrifice on the cross, is to bring about life for others. So it's first then a selfless giving. It's saying that my personal freedoms are not as important and that if my dream has to die so that somebody else can take and enjoy then maybe that's what I need to do. Maybe that Christ-like life I can give to somebody else by denying myself. That's the way of Jesus. Maybe more often than I want to count, I have to say death to me and life to you. Maybe that's what i got to start learning to say much more easily than I want to. I know when God first worked in my heart and I was an older teenager, uh, that was not an easy thing for me to do. Uh, to be able to say life to you and death to me. And I remember the first couple times that I struggled with my two older brothers after I'd been saved and they were kind of checking me out. Yeah, sure you know Jesus. And they purposely <laughs> were trying to go after me and just get under my skin. And I remember a couple times I blew it, you know, life to me, death to you is what I was practiced at. But eventually, God really got hold of me and started showing me that that way of the cross is wonderful. God gets the glory. And those are the things that we need to be willing to say. Um, this kind of thinking and doing is described by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, then 10 and 11. And I'm just, I've written it down already because time-wise I don't want to flip to that. Um, 2 Corinthians 4 Verse 7, but we have this treasure, and the treasure that he's talking about is union with Christ. That's what we spoke about last week, union with Christ. The treasure that we have, we have it in just clay vessels. That's us. We're pots made out of common earthenware is what Paul says we are. There's nothing real special about us. The world tells us to pump ourselves up. The world says you're everything. You know, who's going to take care of you but you? Jesus is saying you're just a clay pot, but it's okay. I made you. I formed you as a clay pot so that I would put my surpassing value and riches in you. That's what you're all about, he says. So verse 7, so that we in this clay jar, uh, clay jar, our treasure, this treasure with Jesus, our plain old bodies would show that the surpassing power which comes from God and not from us. So the union with Christ, the power that we had to say no to sin, is surpassing power that comes from God. It's not our own power. And then he goes on in verses 10 and 11. We are always carrying in this clay jar, in this body, we are carrying the death of Jesus. 
so that the life of Jesus may also be shown forth in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also might be shown forth in our flesh. So here it is. Our daily walk brings us to experience this conforming ourselves to the life-giving death of Jesus. Again, freedom is very different than what the world says. Our freedom comes because we subject ourselves to slavery with Christ, a beautiful bond service to Jesus Christ. This Christian life is an irony, but it's a wonderful irony, isn't it? Well, finally, to attain this resurrection from the dead, we see verse 11. To attain the resurrection, so we're experiencing power of the resurrection, then we fellowship in his sufferings, then we die, we deny ourselves in death, and now, going up vertically, we're attaining the resurrection from the dead. The Greek word that Paul uses here for, that we translate in English, attain, it doesn't mean that somehow we have worked hard and thus we've earned our goal. That's not what the attain means here. Um, instead, it's a little bit different. It means that we've reached, we've come down from the, the, the land and come down to the shore, to the water, and we've reached the goal. We're at that point where our toes are touching the water and we're ready to step into the ocean of God's promises for our eternity. Paul is saying here that through living by suffering and dying, we're going to daily reach that promised destination. On a daily basis, we're going to reach the promised destination of heaven. Now, how do we do that? I thought we had to get rid of this body so we could enjoy heaven. Well, we already know what the scripture tells us, that daily as we reenact this reality of Jesus' suffering, of dying, and then his rising, we are attaining fellowship with him. Well, where is our fellowship? Is Jesus here on earth? No, Jesus is already resurrected in heaven. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, while we were dead in our sins, it was the Father who made us alive, Ephesians 5, uh, 2, verses 5 through 7, the Father made us alive with Jesus, he raised us up with Jesus, and he has now seated us with Jesus in heaven. And then add to this one more verse, Philippians 3.20, just beyond our text here. For we are already citizens of heaven. We are waiting for our Savior to transform our bodies into the state of glory. So we actually, right now, should be enjoying the benefits of heaven. We should be living heavenly because we're citizens there. Yeah, our bodies are still stuck here. We still have to work, put food on the table, pay bills, deal with COVID-19 and try and stay away from the flu. We, that's part of this brokenness that we're in, but we're not citizens of this world. We're strangers, we're aliens, we're sojourners, aren't we? And we are already citizens in heaven. Well, this idea is so wonderful that we would attain to the resurrection of the dead so it, it shows what we've seen already in verse 10, that we have resurrection power, that our power to then daily suffer, our power to go low, when the world tells us to push up, to get our chin of self-reliance up, Jesus is telling us, come with me, come low, it's okay, we're going to get where we need to go. We will get resurrected power by the end of this ordeal. 
We'll get there maybe in an hour, maybe in five minutes. We'll get there. Come with me, though. Don't short circuit and stick your chin up of self-reliance. We're promised that by suffering and dying, we're going to raise with him. Okay, well, I want you to just think with me for a moment about some application. So we need to start putting these verses to some application. And we know verse 12 just is, is further stress on, you've got to apply this stuff. You've got to be living this. So we're going to do that next week. I want us to start applying it by thinking about this model of Jesus, his 33 years of ministry, of displaying a relationship with his father is something we want to look at and recognize that by him placing himself in the place of a servant, Jesus modeling his suffering, his dying, his rising, um, that it's a great model for us. And I want to refer to a book that I've been using. We've used it in a Bible study at our church. It's called um, The J-Curve, A Study in Suffering and Dying. It's by Paul Miller. And I'll probably bring a copy of it next week and show you. But it's a helpful little study. Paul Miller, um, in this J-Curve, gives us just this simple diagram. And, you know, it's just like this. You start here with Jesus suffering. You go down to his dying. And then as he dies, he resurrects, doesn't he? And he ends way up here. So the J-curve, you start here and you suffer and you go low. And as you go low with him, he promises to take you high and you raise with him. So it's suffering, dying, and rising. Simple little illustration, but something that I want you to start thinking about this week. Um, But if you start thinking about this idea of this pattern, you look at scripture and you go, you know, you think about the life of Christ, you see lots of the J-curve, many J-curves happening before his final, ultimate J-curve on the cross. You see Jesus over and over. Take John 4, and I'm just going to use that as one illustration, and we'll complete our message with that. In John chapter 4, we have Jesus encountering the woman of Samaria, and it's much of the chapter. It's a wonderful encounter. If you start thinking about this uh, paradigm that we've been looking at of suffering, denying and dying, and then resurrecting, think about, uh, first of all, here's Jesus. Uh, He's traveling northward, and they're going through an area of Samaria, which normally they would not do, a Jewish man would not go through Samaria. They would go around three days journey, but they're taking a shortcut. And it's been a hot, weary travel. And Jesus comes upon this woman who's drawing water in Samaria. He being a Jew, obviously as a man in that culture, you do not talk to a woman, especially a woman outside your own country. And then we know a little bit further about this woman. Normally a woman would just expect to snap to duty with any man telling her what to do, draw water. But there's something going on in this interesting encounter. It's a moment for Jesus to deny his senses for wanting water, wanting rest, wanting respect from a woman. She's even now looking at him, which women were not to look at men. They were not to look at each other. Jesus is starting to suffer, isn't he? He's putting aside what would be the normal respect that he should be granted in a situation like this because suffering and eventually dying is going to bring about something glorious, a beautiful resurrection. This woman 
who's made a mess of her life. She's been married, this is five times at least. The, the man she's living with is fornication right now. And yet Jesus, again, in his suffering and denying, is choosing not to illustrate any of that, to put that in front of her, to create a wall of respectability for himself. He doesn't do that by telling her her, her fault, her sin, in order to boost himself. So as Jesus is enacting this mini J-curve, he's telling her real words of life. And the resulting action as this woman is confronted with gospel hope is she believes. And she takes off and goes into her town and starts telling all the people of what happens. In the meantime, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's making this kind of an illustration for them because they're all eyes watching him deny himself, suffer and deny, and speak to a woman and give her words of hope, a Samaritan? No way. We're Jews. We have something to be proud of. God said his blessing was on our nation, not other nations. So Jesus is doing all kinds of things in this mini J-curve that's going on here. As he tells them, he is saying something to them. The word goes out, and it's the Father who prepares hearts. Now open your eyes, look up, and see these townspeople coming back with this woman. See that the fields out there are white. They're ready for harvest. You see, then what happens is the townspeople come back and they listen. This woman has already been harvested. And we see then the suffering, the dying, and then the rising where the gospel comes. And it opens up people's hearts to Jesus. God has the victory, doesn't he? Had Jesus or others short-circuited that process, that rising, that wonderful bringing of heaven to earth, that wonderful bringing life to dead people who, who deserve nothing, wouldn't have happened. Now think about how you and I can watch Jesus as we're reading scriptures this week and reading other scriptures. Think about how you can look at the life of Peter, the life of Paul, and think of how often these people evidence for us this J-curve. Giving myself up. Taking the extra few minutes kind of suffering a little bit. And then denying myself. And saying death to me and, and life to you. I'll listen to you. Although I don't have much time. And I'm going to be late. But can I trust God for an extra three minutes to somehow make it up for me? And I listen. So I deny myself. And then I'm praying and I'm trusting. And then what happens? That person felt heard. And it slowed me down in my pride and my getting my to-do list done. Notched me down a little bit, which is all hallelujah. <laughs> it's glory because heaven's coming to me. It's shaping me more in the image of Jesus, isn't it? So I want us to just take a little time this week, if you would, and think about opportunities that God gives you at work, family, Maybe a phone call, maybe a text, maybe something you read on somebody's post and your immediate reaction. And then, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't need to react right now. Well, this is the way I've always heard them. This is how they always go. The next thing they're going to say is probably da-da-da-da-da. And then, no, I'm not even going to stay around to hear the end of this. I'm not going to be their dupe. I'm not going to be used by them. Uh-uh. But wait a minute. Maybe this is a broken person, and they do repeat this stuff a lot. But maybe God wants you to step in, take an extra few minutes, suffer by listening and hearing the same story again. But as you're listening, praying, 
rather than judging, rather than saying, I already know where we're going with this, rather than already figuring your way out of the situation, just praying, giving in, listening, maybe even nodding, even though you don't want to agree to anything they say, maybe giving a couple nods because there are a few true things they're saying. And then as you're praying, giving time for God to do the work, whatever it might be. You might not even see the rising part of it. It might come later. But you're giving yourself in this J-curve because this is Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he's called us to be. And God will have the harvest of righteousness. Heaven comes down and does amazing things. May God help us this week. I urge you to be looking for those in your life and stepping into them. Uh, And then next week, we're going to just look at some more examples, look at scripture, and then pray with one another. Oh, God. This isn't anything new, but it's just a good way, a good model for me to have as I walk with you. May Christ get the glory. Amen? Amen. If you don't have that relationship we're talking about here today with Jesus Christ, if you have watched it all your life, and maybe you're very used to it, you've heard Christian talk a lot, Bible talk, but maybe you actually haven't come to that point of being vulnerable, of opening yourself up to God and saying, I don't think I have that. I don't think I have that relationship with you, God. I don't think Jesus really is my Savior. I know about him, but he doesn't know me, and I'm not experiencing him. Then maybe today is the day that you need to get right with him. Scripture says that today is that day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. Don't turn away and walk away. Today, come to him. And I want to urge you, Don't let today slip by without saying, Jesus, I come to you. Would you take me as I am? Scripture says that he will. He'll make you new. He'll forgive you of your sin. He'll call you his child and make you his own. Would you do that today? Pray with me as we close here.